Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Pranada Kamtwa. Pranada is a devoted pilgrim, teacher, and award-winning author of Wise Love, Bhakti and the Search for the Soul of Consciousness. Her writing sheds light on Bhakti's wisdom school of heartfulness with a focus on how to culture wise love in our lives and relationships so we can experience the inherent unbounded joy of the self. At 16, she met her teacher, A.C. Bhakti Vedanta Swami, and began her lifelong study and practice of Bhakti. The wisdom of her teaching grows from living for 20 years as a contemplative in Bhakti ashrams, and another 20 years raising a family and running two multi-million dollar businesses. Her writing has appeared in Integral Yoga, Rebel Society, Elephant Journal, Tattooed Buddha, and the books Journey of the Heart, Bhakti Blossoms, and Goddess, When She Rules. She is also a featured speaker in the film uh, Women of Bhakti. So with that, hello, Pranada. Thank you so much for joining me. Good morning, Jacob. Glad to be here with you. So I'm excited to talk to you today um, a lot about um, topics that arose in my reading of your book, Wise Love, which for those that are watching this video, I'll show uh, the book here, which is really very beautifully written. So um, I appreciated um, reading it and, and learning your perspective on a variety of things as they relate to bhakti uh, philosophy and theology. So to start with, I, I do want to get a little bit into your story and, and how you came to the bhakti tradition, but I want to start out just by asking, what is wise love? So wise love in a very succinct, obviously the whole, the whole book is a description of wise love, but a succinct description is to, um, well, it's coming in the yoga tradition, obviously, bhakti. And when we speak about bhakti yoga, we're speaking about a, a method of being and developing love that's based on philosophy and um, understanding a, a meta-narrative about the world described in the Yoga Sutras and Bhagavatam and other Bhakti Shastras. Um, so wise love is a, um, a an idea that it requires head and heart, the spiritual life requires head and heart. Um, now Bhakti is very much based in an approach of love toward our source, toward the Supreme. But that's not a love that's just sentimental or um, not grounded deeply in uh, Vedanta. So wise is the Vedanta side and love is the Bhakti side. So Bhakti Vedanta is the English translation of that. I see. So the, and I'm glad you mentioned the difference between, um, you know, this form of love and kind of a sort of oozy sentimentality, because that's one of the questions that I have. This isn't just um, quite the same love that's the feverish love for the, at the beginning of a relationship. This is something that's much more cultivated. So can you contrast that a little bit more, this notion of the difference between wise love and the love that I have for, you know, say my family or my partner or my friends? Sure. Uh, when we have the experience of love as human beings, it's giving us a hint of what is possible for the spiritual self. The spiritual self is eternally an individual, a unit of consciousness, a willful unit of consciousness that has characteristics and desires, and those don't shut down in liberation, but blossom and develop in a way, in their fullest 
purest state. So what we're seeing here, and I think most of us can relate, when we are in, a, uh, in loving exchanges here in this world with friends, families, lovers, uh, children, parents, we find conflict, we find discrepancies, we find things sometimes even breaking down completely, even as much as they're a, a glorious, wonderful experience of um, the heart. What we have with wise love or love of, of the supreme is uh, not a breaking down, but an actual um, uh, unity that is, that is not disharmonious with the diversity of being two. So it's a it's a perfect melding of two hearts where individuality remains intact, but it's without the inevitabilities that we find in this world. Each of us, and, and what we're finding in our loving relationships in this world is they're breaking down at points where one person's desires are in conflict with our desire. And in wise love, what we're finding is a self, what we're coming to is a self-surrender to the Supreme, to God, that um, uh, ends the boundaries that we find here. And in fact, I was just reading um, an older book about bhakti, and the author, O.B.L. Kapoor, was describing how bhakti itself is a divine energy which brings the unit of consciousness, the small soul, in contact with the grand unit of consciousness, the supreme soul. And it's an automatic connection. So um, the self-surrender, the, the small soul surrenders, uh, self-surrenders, and the large or supreme soul gives grace. So this is the relationship between the two, and I was thinking how um, I often kind of was repelled by the idea of the supreme giving grace or mercy because that makes me dependent, you know? That makes me like, oh my, you know, what if they're not merciful? And why should I put myself in a situation that I have to receive mercy to, to progress or to feel in a relationship? Yeah. But this is just the dynamic of who we are. We're small units. We don't have control even of our own body and our digestive system necessarily. What to speak of the na nature's laws. And, you know, if we, if we really look at our situation, we have to say, I am a small person. I'm one of billions in the world of human beings. This planet is one of multi-universes in how many galaxies are uncountable we start bringing that down to who we are we have to say yes i'm small and acknowledging that is an important part of any spiritual path that i've read about and studied but to speak of bhakti so in bhakti we accept that position as um small as and we take a, a humble position and that is uh, creates this, like I said, this magnetic connection, dynamic, spiritual magnetic connection between ourself and our source that draws the two together uh, irrevocably and strongly. So um, when we get over that hurdle of admitting that we're small and accepting that position, 
then hey, grace is really a great <laughs> benefit. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I have a couple questions on on that, you know, sort of um, maybe about kind of the metaphysics of it, uh, because from what I understand, you know, one of the the grounding principles of bhakti is the personality of the supreme, um, which, you know, arguably could be said to differ from some other um, Mm -hmm. Eastern traditions that either, you know, say there is no supreme like Buddhism or or the supreme is a sense impersonal. So, Mm -hmm. you know, what are the stakes in seeing the Supreme as a personality? That would be the first question. And then the second is, can you practice bhakti without that, uh, without having a relationship with the idea of the personality of the Godhead? Okay, so really good questions. Um, The stake, uh, could just clarify a little bit, when you say the stake of the person, well, let me just step back and, and explain. According to Vedanta, uh, the Supreme is known as Brahman. That's the technical term that we'll hear, whether you're in the Bhakti school or the Advaita school, the impersonal school, which there are only two. Even in Western philosophy, it comes down to a personal uh, personal manifestation or an impersonal manifestation. It's just the nature of the discussion of the metaphysics. So, in, so Brahman... Uh, has three features according to Vedanta and those three features are the impersonal feature the what's called the localized feature or God in the heart Mm -hmm. and then the personal feature of God so um, the stake in that is um, try loving try loving nothing now (laughs) Now, Brahman, you have to understand, the the Bhakti school doesn't disagree that Brahman exists and is a reality. This is a reality. This is a feature of the absolute. It's impersonal. It's indeterminate oneness, uh, contentless, uh, but conscious. It's a state of absolute peace, and that's where... that's. of course, Buddhists, they don't really even believe in Brahman. They believe in, in, in nothing, just nothingness. But uh, the, the, the Advaita school believes in that indeterminate Brahman, which is a very peaceful state. And achieving that, you achieve eternal peace. So that it's, it's a desirable state from our c- condition of being so distressed and harassed by bodily and mental and external and relational and all these things that come at us all the time in this uh, this world of suffering, as the Buddha said, um, peace is a very desirable condition. And it is attainable by a, a tough path, but it is attainable. But that said, how do you love that? How do you love indeterminate nothingness uh, or oneness? That's that bhakti can't be associated with that because bhakti means an exchange of love, and when we have love, we have to have two, right? How can I mean I can love myself? Okay, there is a because the self is a unit of consciousness, so I can actually have self self-love as opposed to loving the table. I can like the table. I can appreciate the function of the table. I can be in gratitude for my table, but I'm not going to have loving exchanges of, you know, (laughs) infatuation and getting to know its personality. Like, you know, it just, it doesn't happen. 
right? Unless we're psychotic or something. But <laughs> uh, so the you need to. Therefore, bhakti um, is only applicable when you have the uh, personal form of God. Now, you can love the, the, God in the God in the heart, known as Paramatma, or the Supreme Atma. That's a love that's possible, too. But that's generally, or, or I should say always, according to Vedanta, a love that is awe and reverence, like, oh, my God, you know, just like this uh, supreme being that is um, overseeing everything, ourselves and every single person and the whole world and the galaxies. And it's just like, oh, my God. So um, that's kind of a, that's also that's a love, but it's a reverential love. Mm. You know, we have experienced as human beings of intimate love of that kind of love that is, like you said, it's the roller coaster infatuation of just being overtaken by love. So um, that's the kind of love we're interested in bhakti, but with the supreme that has none of the drawbacks. The infatuation it doesn't. The infatuation doesn't wear off. It just intensifies <laughs> deeper and deeper and deeper as you explore who the Supreme is and the personality of the Supreme and the features of the Supreme. And it's, it's one of the teachers in my line would called uh, the Supreme uh, reality, the beautiful. So uh, beauty personified, gorgeousness personified, sweetness personified. So in my tradition, the Bhakti tradition, which looks as Krishna as the, the para-brahman, or the personal feature of the Brahman manifestation. So we can say, hey, now you're getting a little into a cultural differentiation. I can't go with that, this blue person playing the flute. <laughs> and uh, I have been there, even in my own practice of bhakti, where I have come up against my faith and had crises of faith and said, you know, I can't prove that Krishna is God and the Brahman is this and, and what that. Um, but I, I, I did come to, I have gotten beyond that, but even as I was wrestling with my own faith and practice, I had to actually admit that, well, if I look at the ideas of God that are out there, and you can look at all the traditions, and I, I'm fairly well read, I'm not an expert in all the traditions by any means, I'm certainly not a scholar, but in my own reading, which is extensive, where do we where do we find such detailed descriptions of a personal God? It, I can say pretty surely it doesn't exist. So then we have, well, can I go with those very specific personal descriptions? And I, I say, you know, maybe you can, maybe you can't, but it's very charming. At the very least, it's extremely charming. And when I think of the Supreme, he ought to be joyful. He ought to be young. He ought to or she be beautiful, be very attractive. Uh, there should be a method of approaching that, that person that is specific. So even if we kind of get hung up on the details and we say, oh, this is cultural, I don't want to have anything to do with it, you have to say, well, at the very least, it's a form of meditation that's extremely attractive and charming. Mm. Um, and then beyond that, you have saints and seers and mystics who have had vision, you know, darshan, exchange, and um, 
sometimes we can just like go to reveal text and say, ah, you know, old books, dusty books has nothing relevant. No, but it's much harder to deny the experience of those mystics whose lives show an example that are uh, phenomenal, that are going, that are superhuman, going beyond our humanness. We have to say, wow, something is relevant. Something is real here because the person has changed. And how hard is it for us to change? If we're trying, we know it's not easy to change and to transcend our humanness. So when we find people who have had the Jesus, the Buddha, Muhammad, um, the saints, the mystics, in whatever tradition, we have to say this is this is proof of a of a transcendental existence, and um, we have within the Bhakti traditions thousands who are saying God has a flute and He likes to play it to call us and say, "Hey, you know, <laughs> come join me in my fun." <laughs> yeah. So just to return to that that kind of um, the connection of the Vedanta teaching of Brahman with. Um, the the kind of bhakti teaching is the idea that the experience of that sort of you know that ineffable oneness is that a lower threshold of achievement in the bhakti tradition and then and then one sort of realizes that and then they have a relationship with 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 Krishna or the personality or is it something that has sort of happened happened simultaneously. Um. Uh, well, you know, when we start talking about high, there are certainly the texts do speak about realizations in terms of a hierarchical state. Right. But it also describes that it really depends on the individual because we are individuals. We have individual will that doesn't go away, even in liberation. So what do you want? Do you want to merge into indeterminate oneness and uh, drop your personality? and not have a loving relationship and be peaceful, that might be for you. Um, do you want to maintain your individuality, find its fullest expression and its full potential, and have a, a loving relationship where you can actually talk and discuss and play and engage with the Godhead in a personal way? So it, it comes down to um, that. It comes down to our personal decision. That's why uh, the East, Eastern thought or Hinduism is so interesting because it's very open in its acceptance of all ways and all yeah. possibilities, right? That's the beauty of Hinduism, actually. Um, but, it, it's, but we do have to understand uh, what we are dealing with. So in the bhakti... Uh, texts. Uh, what we what we what we learn is that the the supreme person has an aura, just like we have auras, and some people can see those auras. Sometimes we can even feel the aura lacking when we're sick. We can feel that you know we don't have the kind of energy that can usually expand. We know what our space is when someone gets too close to it. So yeah. we might even have personal experience of our aura. So the Supreme Person has an aura. That aura is Brahman, that effulgent, bright light that is illuminating everything and is the basis of everything is the, that aura of the Supreme Person. That's how it's seen in the Bhakti texts. And um, now the approach to each uh, aspect of the, of the Brahman is also different. Like... Uh, 
for, for approaching the indeterminate oneness. It's like this very this ascetic approach to controlling the mind and just focusing, I am a spiritual being, I am one with the supreme. I'm one. So it's, a, um, it's generally a path that requires full celibacy and uh, uh, absorption in the this, this, this texts. So you're studying them all the time and you're learning all the time. And it's like this mind control is the gyan path toward Brahman. And then in, um, in connecting with the Paramatma, there begins to be a little more of a dialogue. That's generally as described by Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras, yoga, Raj Yoga, Hatha Yoga, when you have all of the eight limbs going into meditation, what are we meditating on? It's the Paramatma, the, the, the Supreme Soul in the heart with us. That's the goal of the yoga path. Then you have the bhakti, which is uh, really, there's bhakti, there's only one uh, supreme in bhakti, and that's Krishna. Now you say, well, what about Shiva and Durga? In the, in the Indian traditions, we have bhakti for Shiva and Durga. So bhakti, when you think of it as devotion, or as loving devotion or devotional service, there can be aspects of that devotional sentiment for Shiva and Durga, Shiva Shakti. But it's not exactly bhakti because the, the bhakti is an, uh, a state that is eternal and grows. When those who are worshiping Durga, for instance, see that behind Durga is Brahman, for the most part, that oneness. So you, you're you worshiping Durga up to a certain point, and then you kind of dispose of her, and you merge into the oneness. So that's, how is that bhakti? When you're, dis, if, if it's bhakti, it's eternal and it's growing, it's not being disposed of. Now bhakti can get you far because everyone responds well to love and devotion. So Durga will respond well to you and give you the goals that you want and Shiva as well. But bhakti per se um, is for the Supreme Godhead. And in that sense, we're talking again uh, about hierarchies where um, there's one text in uh, a text called Brahma Samhita by Brahma, who's the creator of the universe. And he, he says, Devi Maheshu Haridam Suteshu. So in this material world, we have Devi Dam, De, the realm of Durga. This, this is her realm, the material world. Above Devi's realm is Shiva's realm. That's Maheshu, Mahesh Dam. And he is uh, very close to Krishna in, in Tattva or Tattva truth. Um, but he lacks some of the characteristics of Vishnu and Krishna. And above, so Devi Mahesha Hari, then you have Hari's Dham, which is uh, the Dham of Vishnu, and then Maha Hari Dham, Krishna's Dham. So there are different texts that describe uh, a hierarchy, but again, it's a personal desire, what, what we're looking for, what we want. If we want to fulfill material desires, you know, there's one text that says, approach the Supreme Godhead for material desires, spiritual desires, nothing. But really, um, material desires, Durga is a good one to, to give.
Right. And um, Shiva's a good one for liberation from the body. So I want to ask a question that sort of I, I feel like, you know, presenting itself, which is the um, the connection between the, rela- the relationship with the Supreme and my relationships with other people. Because, yeah. you know, one thing that sometimes, uh, you know, arises, I think, in when we when we when we um, confront the kind of idea of dualism between the spirit and matter is that oftentimes the the the, the material realm gets sort of it, 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 it by negating it or by by denying its sort of ultimate reality, it can lead to a kind of escapism that then moves us away from the world. And so how mm-hmm. if I if if the ultimate relationship is my relationship with the Supreme, what how do how am I inspired to then be of service to the world? Uh, on a couple of levels. First of all, if you're if your metaphysic is that I'm a spiritual being, you're a spiritual being, we're all equally spiritual beings. There's no difference between us on a spiritual level. We have all have the same potential for uh, transcending the body and the mind and uh, achieving our spiritual state and which one, as we discussed. Um, so if I'm seeing you, Jacob, as a unit of consciousness, then I start interacting with you in a completely different way than if I'm seeing a man who's such and such age, born in such and such a place, has such and such political views, religious views, whatever, whatever makes up you as a person, I could take exception with on many levels if I just saw you. But if I see the transcendent you, I, I have a completely different relationship with you. I don't want to take from you. I don't want to take advantage of you. I don't need you to be a certain way or do a, a conform to certain ideas that I have about how people should be or behave. Now, I'm not talking about moral or ethical behavior. I'm just talking about imposing our will on others to get what we want because that's what we're doing here. We're here in this world trying to get what we want and other people get in the way of that. And therefore, I want them out of the way. And sometimes I get very vicious about it and will start a war or whatever, right? So I'm talking about controlling that desire for my own gratification of tastings, you know, just gratifying this, instead of just gratifying this body, I'm starting to see the transcendental vision when I'm seeing you as a spiritual being. Now, if I'm in a, 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 an intimate relationship with you, then how will I treat you even? You know, it, it really starts to frame what's important when you start seeing from that vision of a being, spiritual being. And then what does that give us? That gives us a great opportunity because according to, now, according to the bhakti tradition, we're eternally individuals with feelings, with desires. That doesn't go away. What we do is we use them and like a thorn to remove a thorn, we use them to transcend and come to our spiritual state of genuine spiritual emotion, genuine spiritual desire. And now in this realm, if if we're in a relationship, I can use that. My relationship with you becomes a vehicle for me to fully express the best, the most 
the highest love that I can with you as a practice in my relationship with the Supreme. Because, uh, you know, the Supreme is not going to want us entering and hanging out and being obnoxious people, even on a very subtle level. You know, if I've got, you know, my agenda in any way, it's going to clash. And that's what we find here. The disunity here is so disheartening that a lot of people choose the path of merging into oneness just because the disharmony and the disunity of all the different individuals is just, we're ready to give it up completely. And Bhakti says, you don't, there is such a thing as unity in the individuality that's perfectly harmonized and very beautiful. And we, we do have like moments of that where we see that in our own lives, but it's so fleeting and we can't grab onto it and it's gone before we really can feel it deeply. Um, so that's the promise of a relationship with the Supreme in a personal way. And our living here is an opportunity to to play it out, to experience it, to, to make it transcendental. And then when you do, when you, when you have a personal conception of the Godhead, then what happens is that in, on top of these relationships that I'm engaged with right now, that can be used to find my real spiritual self, my real spiritual desires and emotions, I can engage fully with the world because all of a sudden, I'm seeing God everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and not just a, an indeterminate God, a power. I'm seeing the, the touch of the Supreme Being in my life and around me. And in gratitude, I can start making offerings in a real way. As I described in Wise Love in one place, I, I said, you know, how do you fall in love with anyone? You get to know them. And how do you do that with the Supreme? Well, you can hear texts. You can um, create a sacred space with a picture of your, your Supreme Worshipful on that altar. Offer some food lovingly and um, lo lovingly accept that uh, food as remnants, as grace, as mercy. And there's, in Bhakti tradition, it's quite sophisticated the interrelationship between the individual soul and the supreme soul and it's uh, I didn't even really be able to get into some a lot of the details of the ways that we can engage with the supreme but it's very practical and ex quite extensive mm, yeah and intuitive very intuitive mm. very intuitive that was a really great answer to that so now I want to go back to something that you mentioned before because I really like uh, your um, distinction between faith and belief in the book you have a chapter mm -hmm. sort of devoted to that and 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 you remark on how you know faith is often um, uh, understood as this kind of blind belief and mm -hmm. you and you make a distinction there so can you talk about what that distinction is when you're talking about having faith in a tradition um, how does that differ from a kind of blind adherence to something well, when we're talking about matters of the spirit, um, it is transrational. So at a certain point, there is faith. More, it comes down to trust. It's like, what can I trust here? At a, at, we're going to go to certain areas where the mind can't go. So reason, it, it transcends reason. It's transrational. 
But that doesn't mean foolish or non-thinking or not reasonable. Um, there's all kinds of reason that comes into play about choosing where to put your trust. Um, you're, you know, if I have a relationship with someone and they repeatedly let me down, I'm going to know that's not where the trust, my trust can go. And I'm not going to put my faith in that person. Yeah. So, um, when we hear about matters that are beyond our ability to see at this point, like I, you know, I'm, I might not see the form of the personal form of the Supreme right now. So how do I trust that? How do I trust its existence? Well, um, look at the metaphysics behind the philosophy that proposes that the Supreme is a person. Does that stack up reasonably? Is it logical? Um, and then when you have to make those leaps, can, can, you, can you therefore have enough faith in what you have heard or trust in what you have heard that you can make those leaps, which are generally made by seeing the example of others as I described earlier. We, largely, we do need to see examples and those examples are available in the seers and the saints and the mystics. We just have to open our eyes and look because they do exist. And if one exists, that means that the, the potential of that reality for us exists as well. So um, in, that, in, that first, in that chapter, I opened up by describing how faith was not always used in a religious context, mm -hmm. which is quite interesting. It's yeah. become a religious context. Faith is like, whoa, you know, not going there. Um, and, and belief is more like, a condition of the mind. Okay, I accept that, but it may be might not even be reasonable. Yeah. So what I propose, it's not a belief, um, and that's the other thing. When you under when you start looking at the meta narrative, I'm a spiritual being, and I have a source. Being as small as I am, I'm, I didn't I didn't create myself, so I have some source. Now whether that source is impersonal, personal is part of the dialogue, but I have a source. And um, so is, is uh, finding, finding that source is not a matter of belief, it's a matter of reality. So then what, like I said, then what reality do I trust? What path can I trust to take me to that reality? And it's a very, uh, at first it's a very intellectual experience, an attempt a very head-based attempt, uh, but in the practice, it becomes experiential and becomes very heartfelt. And that's one of the processes of a, a spiritual life is this harmonizing of the head and the heart to be uh, one. And but it, to get to a heart place requires some practice. Our, our, uh, our ideas are very skewed. We've been here in the world a very long time, many lifetimes, trying our little God projects of uh, being happy here and having it our way. So to shift that does take a practice, and it re requires a serious ego, we could call it ego-effacing or ego-cleansing path. It's not just willy-nilly, like pulling this here and pulling that there. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I like that distinction. And I think, um, you know, what you're remarking on really resonates with me as it being something that is very <clears throat> intellectual, especially at first, because for most of us, especially, you know, if there are many of the people who listen to this podcast are people who grew up in a Judeo-Christian tradition. And so there is a kind of almost a, 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 a preparatory phase or a kind of mm -hmm. making reasonable or understanding the reasonableness of a tradition that's not natural to us because, right. you know, it would be very different if we grew up in India where we were just sort of immersed in this automatically and therefore <laughs> there wouldn't maybe necessarily even need to be a kind of intellectual process or an intellectual formation. So it's interesting. I think it's a unique aspect um, for Westerners coming to you know, really any Eastern tradition that there is more of a kind of um, process of, of kind of, you know, intellectually and reason uh, at the basis of reason imbibing a kind of, um, um, you know, narrative. But, you know, one thing you also mentioned in your book, which relates to this faith idea is that ultimately it is emotionally grounded. You know, you mentioned that scientists themselves have biases. You know, mm -hmm. a scientist doesn't go into any scientific project without some kind of emotional connection. Otherwise, why would they? Why would they exactly. make any, you know, leap to begin with? They wouldn't, if mm -hmm. there was no emotional investment in anything, we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. Exactly. So it's, you know, it's this idea of like, oh, is it reason or is it emotion is kind of a false opposition. Exactly. It is. It is indeed. Um, uh, but what I just would address one point that you made where uh, those who were born in India, they are immersed in this and, and they are. I mean, everyone just takes it for granted that there's birth and rebirth and I'm going to have another life. Yeah. Uh, there's no there's no idea of like what we get with Judeo Christian or Abrahamic thought where this is it, this is our one chance, and you're going to hell if you mess up, and you're going to God if you do well. Um, but there in India, it's like, yeah, you're a spiritual being, and you come back, and you got to get it right at some point. And, but at the same time, um, any spiritual practice or any goal that we have, the more that it is grounded in... Um, the theory, the better we are going to be at the practice mm -hmm. because the practice is not short. It's not just, uh, you know, attempting something for a few months or sitting down for half an hour a day. This is a life project, liberating ourselves from the confines of a body and the, the mind and the world, which is a suffering place. I mean, as I say in the book, too, I see it as a love affair here in this world. But it is a suffering place, too. We can't deny that. So um, in order to pull ourselves out of where we have been for lifetimes, we need solid theory. And we have to hear that theory over and over again because it's so simple to just fall back into old patterns. And we're not just talking about this life pattern, but multiple life patterns. And therefore, you have those on the Gyan path. They're literally, they're, you know, they're ascetics. They're the ones that are going into the Himalayas, into a cave and not seeing another human being and barely eating and just immersing in in I am spirit and this I am one with the supreme spirit 
Um, but it's it is a life it's a lifetime whatever the path is it's it's a lifetime endeavor so we need to be able to stay the distance if, you know on a long run it takes some real practice to yeah. be able to take that long run um, and and therefore what's so interesting about bhakti is that even though it is a heart it is heartfulness it is the it is the yoga of the heart it is the yoga with, with, it's the yoga within the yoga tradition that develops the heart it is very rigorous philosophy i mean some of i i i mean i had there's hundreds of bhakti texts that would be impossible to get into the details but it is serious philosophy that will will be able to debate the shankaras and the advaitins you know it it goes toe to toe in debate on a philosophical level so yeah, and that's helpful. Yeah, I appreciate that 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 um, way of looking at the theory because I I I I really be, because oftentimes I feel like the the theory is sort of posited as something. Oh yeah, you get to know it and then you throw it out because practice is the important thing. And what you're saying, which is really I think important, is this idea that the theory always grounds the practice, and that and it's almost like the theory keeps us fascinated. The philo- the constant mm-hmm. engagement with the philosophy mm-hmm. and the the nuances of it and the depth of that and the extent and the expansiveness of it is what keeps us anchored because it's so interesting. I mean, we wouldn't have, be having this conversation if it wasn't interesting. Yeah, which which I would like to say, just for those who are interested in Brahman uh, goal, there's nothing to talk about. So it's <laughs> indeterminate oneness. So just, you know, there's nothing to discuss because there's nothing, in, you know, individual about it. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, and the thing is, as you practice, there's there's very something very interesting that happens. As you practice, you go into more and more subtle realms and more and more fine tuning. And each time you're coming, it's almost like you come to another plateau. And on that plateau, you need grounding in the tattva or the truth or the theory. So you know, so you're in this new place. You have to refer to the theory to get you to the next plateau. Mm-hmm. It's it's not just like, okay, you know, I've got the meta-narrative. I'm a spiritual being. I'm not the mind. I'm not the body. <laughs> and I'm eternal. And so, boom, let's go on from here. Yeah. Uh, there's there's so many nuances to that and how it applies at each of the levels and what to take in and how to see it. It's it's very complex. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's the biggest challenge that any human being could face. How are we going to become superhuman? How are we going to transcend and really become our full potential and experience all that's possible for us as spiritual beings, which is far greater than what this world has to offer. You know, we see all the variety here and we're just taken in and consumed and overwhelmed by it. But this is just a pale reflection of reality. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is a good uh, point to segue then into this observation that you have that we've talked about before when we, um, when you and I and Hari Kirtanadas were on a panel together, which is this um, confusion or conflation of spirituality and psychology. You know, people now really are are mm-hmm. turning the Eastern traditions mm-hmm. into mostly kind of therapeutic models. Mm-hmm. So yeah. can you can you really can you kind of unpack that for us? Well, it's the yoga system is a very solid um, therapeutic model, yeah. and because what we're talking about is um, 
the philosophy of mind. And in fact, I was listening to a teacher recently. I was just up in North Carolina listening to his classes. And um, one of the things he said caught my attention. I'll bring it up. But when you, who would be somebody that you would go to to speak about philosophy of the mind? Would it be someone who has control of the mind or someone who just talks about what might be the mind? Mm -hmm. And in other words, shall I just go to a professor at a university who's talking about Western philosophies and the mind is this and the mind is that? And should I go to psychologists, talk about the mind, psychotherapists? Or should we go to somebody who actually has controlled the mind to a degree do you think that they might know something about mind if they're not pushed by sexual desire or they're not pushed to accumulate and you know try to get everything for their gratification if they're completely peaceful and they are, have controlled the human passions might they know something about the mind so this is what the yoga system is the yoga system is about learning what the mind is learning how to control it, to transcend the mind and body. And um, what, what that does then is um, bring us into a different realm where we're, where we're, we're peaceful. <laughs> yeah. We can attain peace. And that's not our current experience. Our current experience is the mind is just going off constantly. In fact, I was just listening to... Ross, I think his name, Russ, Russ Hudson, who is like uh, very much uh, a main teacher of the Enneagram system of personality, examining personality, if you've heard that before. So I was listening to him and he said, he was like, any of us know that the mind is just a, a chatterbox that doesn't stop ever. And it's just harassing us constantly. So... Um, how do we how do we control that? That's what we all of us are interested in. So now we have come to the now, be in the present. That's a way. Meditate. That's a way. There's options. You know, in psychotherapy, we can get in touch with some of the tricks of the mind and and come into control of it in that way. These are all very this very powerful tools that the yoga system has to add to what we do know about the, the mind through psychology and philosophies of mind. But ultimately, the mind is matter. It's not us. It is a, it's a subtle carriage that is uh, just like our body, something that we're not. We're not a physical, this is a good vehicle and the mind is a good vehicle. But it's not who we are, so we want to control it and transcend it, not only for happiness, but for spiritual progress. But Buddhism, I mean, I, that's what my take on Buddhism is. I was interested in Buddhism from a very young age. And uh, what I see, it's, it's so interesting for the American public, is in its fantastic psychological assistance and character building. Yeah. So that is a, a true benefit of any of the yoga systems. But again, that because we're not the mind and it is matter, we have to transcend that too. And that's what the yoga systems will give us tools to control the mind, but then how to go up beyond the mind to the, to the platform of the self. Mm -hmm.
So um, I want to uh, get to one topic before the end of our um, conversation, which has been really lovely, because I think it's a really important and interesting distinction that you make between the divine feminine, which of course mm-hmm. we know is a very popular topic right now um, mm-hmm. for very um, good reasons, and mm-hmm. the feminine divine. So you make a mm-hmm. distinction between this, which is actually the first time I'd heard someone make this distinction. So mm-hmm. what do you mean um, by the difference here? Um, as I've been listening to the dialogue about the feminine, the divine feminist, what is generally referred to, and goddess, and of course in the Eastern tradition, the Shakti, the energy of the goddess, the energy of the supreme. Um, and it is a uh, fascinating topic for me personally. I have a special affinity for empowering women and um, a great, uh, uh, just deeply moved by how women are unempowered and um, abused and hurt in many ways in our world. So, um, but I, but I wanted to make that distinct, the distinction between the feminine divine and the divine feminine in this way, the feminine divine, divine in the case of when you say feminine divine, we're talking about a divinity that's feminine in nature. When we say divine feminine, then divine is an adjective to feminine. We're talking about a female being divine-like. And if, we're, when, if we want to make a, uh, a difference in the world, we're going to really have to touch divinity in its pure and true form. It's not going to be just like we said, touchy-feely, like this sounds good, goddess, and what and whatnot. And because men have been so abusive in patriarchal systems, therefore we're going to turn to the goddess and everything's going to be okay. It really doesn't work like that because conditioned beings, whether they're in a male body or a female body, are equally able of disempowering and abusing another human being. And we see that. Uh, you know, women are as easily easy to hurt others as men are. Um, So if we're saying uh, divine feminine and we're just saying, well, women, because they're divine, that's, that's our key to unlocking the mystery of the problems that we're having. We haven't really got it. We have to go to the feminine divine, which is divinity in feminine form, which has that nurturing, loving capacity that we see for a lot it is a feminine aspect of women, but it's that divine, um, the feminine divine as a personality is not within the bounds of matter capable of creating harm. Mm. Um, and in the bhakti tradition, we have the um, feminine divine Radha, who is known as the fountainhead of all the goddesses in the Eastern tradition. Uh, her, her, another name for her is Durga, which means difficult to achieve. The Durga that we generally see uh, in worship, the Devi in worship in the Eastern tradition, Durga means difficult to leave. It's difficult to leave the material world, Durga. And Radha, 
Dur is Durga because she's difficult to approach because she is at the pinnacle of, of reality. Um, so I wanted to clue people in, in this who are having a dialogue about the feminine divine that using these terms precisely would do, go a long way in, in actually accomplishing what wants to be accomplished when we're turning to the feminine principle. It has to be the feminine divine, not just the kind of like um, other women, you know, that are, haven't transcended matter. Yeah. So um, obviously related to this is, is what you mentioned as being um, being part of your activism is empowering women. And I know that you were one of the first people to speak out in the in the um, Bhakti movement. So I thought maybe we could spend the last couple of minutes talking mm -hmm. a little bit about your story and also maybe talking a little bit about, you know, um, raising awareness of this gender inequality. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we're probably all of us are pretty familiar what what happens in institutions yeah. and um, it's institutions is when spirit becomes religion yeah. Yeah. <laughs> becomes law and you know it has to be organized a certain way now I uh, um, not I don't I, I, institutions have a place they're very important for grounding and for the masses of people and for getting us perhaps going and getting us in our practice. Um, and at a certain point, they may not serve us well because the spiritual journey is individual and it's not a law. Love transcends law. Yeah. But law, but love, but it has to be wise love. It has to be grounded in, in the theory, in the philosophy, in morals, in, so many important things. Um, so in, in the institution that I was born and raised in, so to speak, um, the, there was a prevailing hierarchy of men and women were the very lowest on the rung and they were not uh, welcomed into many areas of service that were open to men. Um, there was a lot of disrespect, a lot of disharmony, and unfortunately that even remains today. Um, but I could not tolerate watching that and not speak up. So I did speak up about um, pointing to the texts which describe how the soul is not male or female and has equal access to the full spiritual realm and practices and, and, and the services. So um, I did that work along with, uh, initially by myself, but then other uh, women and men came on board and we did a lot of education through um, uh, publications and seminars and lobbying at the highest uh, uh, body that meets annually. And we did a, a lot of different work that did shift some things uh, but to a large degree, it's not shifted, and there are some quite a bit of discrimination, not so much in America anymore, although it even does exist in America, but in other countries, because the tradition I'm in is practically on all, all the continents. It's all over the world, hundreds right. and hundreds of centers. So um, it's just an unfortunate fact that um, <laughs> some men are full of themselves. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, 
wow, it's unfortunate. So there has to be a pushback to yeah. that. And I think if it's done uh, with uh, love and humility, and but grounded uh, seriously in philosophy, because it does, there's nothing in the, the philosophy in any of the texts that represents that you know a discrimination against yeah. one sex or another. It, it doesn't exist. It, it becomes a mis you know people use texts and then they try to screw out this meaning and they misunderstand it. It's it's biases. Yeah, as we discussed, it's yeah. biases. That's I, I'm glad you pointed that out because um, you know this is sort of. Uh, um, resonating with a conversation I had with Jeffrey Long about um, the way in which you, you know, the way in which you work with another person's perspective in order to convince them. Yes. And it's yes. that you actually, and what you're saying is so true that you have to really work from inter internal to the philosophy in uh, itself yes. and show the ways that this is incoherent or it doesn't logically, you know, derive from this. And I feel like I had a similar experience when I was young and just very innocently was asking someone who had basically a racist um, mm -hmm. idea about relationships and who should be with whom. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, you know, in my kind of Christian environment asked the question, well, you know, there's no, there's nothing in the Bible that says anything about this mm -hmm. being wrong. Mm -hmm. And, and that person took pause. And, and that's really where I feel like the real change can happen is when you mm -hmm. actually adopt the point of view of another mm -hmm. person. And I'm, I'm also thinking about, of course, our current political climate and the way in which we can get through to some people mm -hmm. is by really adopting or at least attempting to adopt their own, the, another point of view and showing mm -hmm. the ways in which it doesn't translate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's so difficult when we're, when we're immersed in a concept of ourselves as a body, like I was born in San Francisco, I'm born a woman. Um, I'm single or I'm married, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a daughter. I believe a certain thing, I have a certain political leaning. The more that we're immersed in that as our identity, the more we're going to have conflict. Mm -hmm. Because um, on the material platform, there is no unity. There is no unity. And that's why we see the world as playing out the way it is. because. We can't have unity on a material platform. Unity is on the spiritual platform. And until we do the work ourselves to live in that spiritual identity on a moment-to-moment -moment in a practical way, we will just find disharmony everywhere. And we're not going to resolve the political situation um, and so that's, of course, asking a lot for many people to come up to a higher level. But that is what's required. If, if we as a group of human beings want to see unity, it's on the spiritual platform. It's not going to happen by thinking I'm a Christian, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm American, I'm Indian, I'm Hindu. It just doesn't, doesn't happen on that level. Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Pranada. Thank you so much Thank for you, sharing Jeff. your uh, wisdom and insight. Do you want to end by sharing anything about what's going on or how people can, what's going on in your <laughs> teaching life? If, you, if you'd like to share any opportunities for people sure. to connect with you again. Sure. I'm, you know, I'm on my website, pranadacomtois.com. I blog there. I'm currently working with a friend on a uh, workbook for yoga teachers to accompany 
Wise Love, the book, which is really um, quite, uh, it's a unique book as a concise handbook on the essence of bhakti that's really not available elsewhere that I've seen. Um, and I am looking at doing an online e-course, and I've started to think of book uh, ideas for another book. So I'm not traveling and speaking. You would connect with me um, on my website okay. and through the book. And it, I welcome any questions, any dialogue, um, any participation. I do blog. I, I do put up essays in different locations from time to time as well, but mostly I'm writing. Okay, wonderful. Um, all right, so everyone check out uh, Pranada's website at pranadacomtois.com. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you so much.